2: Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams.
0: I've been promoted. That's nice.
2: On tonight's (laughs) show, we are going to be discussing OB for the internists. This is a topic that's very anxiety-provoking for, I think, most internists. And hopefully, after listening to this, you are going to feel a lot more comfortable giving some counseling on that and uh, managing some of the medications that you might have to prescribe during pregnancy. Our guest is Dr. Shalei Chen. And before we tell you all about her, Paul, would you remind people, what is it that we do on the show? And can you tell them about uh, any possible CME that they might get for this?
0: (laughs) Sure, you changed it up on me. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. A reminder that this and most of our episodes will be available for free CME credit for all health professionals at curbsiders.bcuhealth.org. That's curbsiders.bcuhealth.org. While I'm talking, I will also mention that we have the amazing Beth Garbs Garbatelli with us, who is uh, one of the co-hosts of this episode as well as the fantastic producer. So, Beth, one of my stories, I always do, and ask, "How are you?"
3: I'm doing well. You know, a little sleep deprived as I'm on a cardiac ICU rotation, but <laughs> I'm God. very much enjoying it and learning all about the heart. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's it's your. your if excuse. I could, what's your excuse, everyone else? She's on a cardiac ICU rotation, helping out with a podcast. Every Let, you, you guys can all get more stuff. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna
0: help you out, Beth. I'm gonna help you, and then also our listeners out there. Here, a, a JVP is about 12 to 14 centimeters, and then I would like to reduce afterload. And if you just say those two things every single time, you'll be a genius. Like you don't have to do anything else. So there, I've just solved most of your cardiac ICU problems. You're welcome. Thank you. But this is not a, a cardiac ICU episode. <laughs> this
3: is not a cardiac episode.
0: <laughs> Beth, before I, I tell us all about our guests, maybe you can just sort of uh, tell us a little bit about the subject that we talked about and and maybe tease some of the points that are going to be made throughout the episode.
3: Yeah, so this is something that we've talked about doing an episode on at the Curbsiders for a very long time. I think that for internists, unfortunately, we sometimes forget that our patients have a uterus. Just sometimes it gets a little bit lost in the review of systems to ask about it. So it's a huge topic to even delve into, but we wanted to sort of dip our toes into OB for the internist where there could be like these overlapping areas for preconception care sort of acute physical complaints that can come up during pregnancy that may get um, brought up in a primary care office versus their OB. And then just some like highlights for postpartum care and tips for screening, you know, making sure that you're keeping on top of things like postpartum depression and um, intimate partner violence. And also understanding that some of the physical conditions that can happen in pregnancy can affect a person's uh, long-term risk for these things like hypertension and diabetes. So... We covered a lot of ground, but we did get some really good, high-yield knowledge food that I think everyone is going to enjoy.
0: Enjoyed this long pregnant pause? Yeah, <laughs> we missed the pun.
3: Um, one thing I do want to note about this episode is we have a case with a cisgender person. Uh, we do want to emphasize that this episode is something that's applicable to any person that's seeking pregnancy regardless of their gender identity. Um, and we just wanted to be mindful of that and make sure that our listeners are mindful of it as well.
0: Great. Thank you for that. And with that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our guest. So we had the, the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Shelley Chen, who is an academic general internist in Providence, Rhode Island. She is originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, where she attended Tulane University for both undergrad and medical school. Dr. Chen completed her internal medicine residency at Temple University in Philadelphia and an obstetric medicine fellowship at the Women and Infants Hospital of Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. Dr. Chen's clinical interests include women's health, particularly preconception and interconception care, medical education, and physician wellness.
3: I don't want to belabor this point, but I think this interview gave birth to a lot of great discussion. Ooh. yeah, none that,
0: that <laughs>
3: Yeah,
2: I don't you, you know what you did. You know what you did. <laughs> so uh, I guess I guess it's time to start. <laughs> Chalet, you want to uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, give them a one-liner, and throw in a hobby or interest outside of medicine.
1: Oh, well, I'm... Uh- academic internist with a special interest in women's health, particularly obstetric medicine. Um, I'm also a wife and soon to be mother. So if I sound a little bit short of breath, uh, it's because I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and then yeah, outside of medicine, my um, I love interior decor. And that's, as a child, I always said my dream was to um, work in a place that was well decorated. So in academic medicine, probably not the case <laughs> that hasn't panned out just yet
2: <laughs> well i'll I'll paul you you all have worked together, so this is your chance if you ever wanted to ask her anything really profound.
0: I was actually now I was gonna either shout you out or call you out. I have to say i'm I'm surprised, so Chalet, I think should write travel logs as a hobby. I'm just I'm remembering the advice you gave me when I was going to New Orleans and you sent me, I think, a three page email that had just a list of restaurants with critiques of each of the restaurants, what they offered, how close they were to each other. (laughs) Also, like the best fan boat tour to see Gators like it had. It was amazing. I still have the email because I like I. So it's this is less a question than just more saying that if you have any actually uh, travel questions, I would encourage you to reach out to any place. I'm sure she'd be happy to hear from you. So we'll make sure we include the email in our show notes.
3: (laughs) I was going to say, I need that
1: email list. I want to go back to New Orleans so bad. Such a great city. I just love to eat. So it's it's not so much the travel. It's just like I really remember each restaurant experience.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And this is a more universal question for us to ask. Do you have any advice for learners? Especially interns, as they start out, I'm really selfishly asking this question to just collect more advice from people, yeah,
2: and Beth, I was gonna ask a similar question because uh, along those lines, I mean you you went from internal medicine and then you did this year in obstetric medicine, which I feel is a pretty unique path. So I'm not sure if it was advice that led you down that, but you know, what advice can you give, you know in in crafting a career as you're doing uh, to the audience and um, if or if there's separate advice that Beth's question brought up.
1: Well, for Beth, I would say um, you know just in general something that I wish someone had told me intern year was you know not to be afraid to ask questions. I think there was just so much anxiety around starting intern year and that and this um, pressure I think I put on myself to feel like I needed to know certain things. And I think you know no one can help you if you don't ask. So. Yeah, so don't be afraid to ask questions, and especially in internal medicine, we, you know, we love engaging with our students and learners. So I think that's always something that you know can't be underestimated. And then in terms of my path into obstetric medicine, so while I was doing the primary care track during residency, I'd always, I mean, I didn't have pregnant patients per se, but I did have a couple patients who were, you know, either preconception counseling or um, postpartum, and I just didn't. Really, quite know what to do with them, so to speak, you know, or I didn't have a, <laughs> um, you know, strategic approach of what I should do, and so I, and that again gave me anxiety because I was like, that's not a patient population that I'm going to see routinely where I can get better at, you know, throughout residency, and so that kind of led me to look into, um, you know, different women's health fellowships, and that's how I came across the obstetric medicine fellowship here at Brown in Rhode Island, and it's the only one like it in the country. There are more obstetric medicine fellowships abroad um, in mostly Commonwealth countries like Canada and the UK, Australia, New Zealand, but in the US, this is the only one here. So it's been really instrumental, I think, in just my development in general internal medicine. I started the fellowship kind of not knowing what to expect per se, and it's really taught me about like multidisciplinary collaboration among OBs, neonatologists, and just other internal medicine subspecialists.
2: All right. Well, it, it it does seem like I mean, in primary care, a lot of the times you're so much practicing alone, but I think a lot of like the best primary care or best programs, like you're like you're saying, you have to have multiple people because there's just so many jobs that go along with it. Having social work and nutrition and pharmacy to help with medication management and all that, the, yeah. Just it is really it is a joy if you're working in a well-functioning place.
0: Even if you're sort of sub-functioning, I will say that the best <laughs> corner I think I turned in practice is when I realized that people appreciate it when you reach out to them. Like I, I think I was so scared that someone would think I was dumb or that I was bothering someone if I want to talk about a mutual patient. And like every single time when someone either reaches out to me or I've talked to someone else who's involved in a patients' care, like it's it's almost uniformly positive. Like and I the fact that I waited years before I did that because I was worried. I might bother someone or they would think I was an idiot. Um just makes me want to kick myself. So it's I I the, the clavorous thing really speaks to me. I think that's a terrific point.
2: Paul, before we get on to the case, did you want to give a pick of the week?
0: Sure. Always happy to. It's um I'm I i can not remember when we're gonna release this one, but we're it's it's spooky season. We're now in October, so I'm thinking about scary movies that I'm gonna be watching for the entire month. I maybe recommended this one before, but I love it so much I'm just gonna do it again. I'm going to recommend the 2011 movie You're Next, directed by Adam Wingard. So I don't know if you remember in the the late 2000s, there was like this spate of home invasion movies like The Strangers, and it was always a bunch of creepy people with masks outside, and they were breaking in, and then it was sad. Um, But this one is a little bit of a twist on that, in that our protagonist, for some reason, for whatever reason, had some sort of survivalist training. And sort of it actually becomes this battle between the home invaders and then also our heroes. And sort of as you find out why the invaders are there and what their motivations are, it becomes more and more suspenseful. And then also there's some bits of dark humor. It's just it's a terrific movie. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend your next, which I think is available streaming on those platforms.
2: I I believe at this at this time, it's on Netflix right now. So if you have Netflix, you can stream it or if you're borrowing your cousin's Netflix or whatever password. <laughs> you, can, you can stream it. Beth, did you have a pick of the week?
3: Yes. Um, I have a pick of the week. That's a book, uh, Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. I don't want to give too much away because it sort of has some twists and turns in it, but it's timely. It's funny. It's insightful. It's thoughtful. It's kind of about insidious racism in our country, and it's just a really good book. I I recommend it. Check it out.
2: Another book recommendation um or just an author recommendation in general Naomi Novik is an author who wrote this book series or is is writing this book series called Deadly Education is that right Paul Deadly Education but That's it's the about, first one yeah It's about this like school that basically tries to kill the students it's like a magic magic school like a wizarding thing it, it's a little bit of a darker type harry potter thing it's it's good check it out it's a quick read but the the book she wrote another book called uprooted which is the one that i just read and uprooted is it's it's a dark fairy tale and it was i just kind of like tore right through it it was a good little story it i found it on some lists of like you know i just searched like what are some good fantasy books that have been written in the last like 10 years and that that one was on there and I, i enjoyed it and uh Two for two with reading her works, so uh, check out Naomi Novik. Hey, curbsiders. Have you been thinking about hiring lately? Let's make a hypothetical here. Maybe you have a co-host on your podcast. Maybe they self-identify as a bit of a curmudgeon, and maybe, you know, you're thinking it's time for a change. I'm not talking about anyone specific, but if you were hypothetically needing to hire somebody... I wanted to tell you about our sponsor today, Indeed. They are an unbelievably powerful hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. They want to help you hire the right people right now. Indeed is going to partner with you every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed lets you pick the skills that are important to you from over 135 assessments and get a clear view of your top talent's abilities faster. That way, you can reduce your hiring time by 12%. That is not nothing, as a certain co-host would say. And audience, don't worry. We are not replacing any co-hosts. Things are all good. Just a hypothetical. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com/internal medicine, that's a seventy-five dollar credit at Indeed.com/internal medicine. This offer is valid through December thirty first. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. And with that, Beth, would you like to take us to a case from CashLack because we have quite a topic tonight.
3: Absolutely. And I, I have to apologize in advance for the name. Ava O'very, that's Don't an Irish apologize. O apostrophe, <laughs> is a 34-year-old female, she, her pronouns, presenting for her annual wellness visit at her PCP's office. While in chatting, the patient mentions that she's seeking pregnancy in the next year or so. She's not had a positive pregnancy test yet, and she's still using contraception. She asks if she needs to do anything to become healthier before she stops using contraception. She doesn't have an OB-GYN right now. She's actually been getting her pap smears in your office annually. Um, her, her past GYN history is notable for, the, for nulliparity and one abnormal pap two years ago showing Elcil. For most recent pap was negative. Her past medical history is notable only for intermittent exercise-induced asthma, for which she takes an occasional albuterol inhaler. So walk us through what what your general approach is to a patient like this who comes to a PCP's office and sort of maybe offhandedly even mentions that this is something they might be seeking in the near future. What's sort of your first step?
1: Yeah, well, I would start by saying that um, there's no one way to do preconception counseling. And what I often remind the patient during a preconception visit with me is that I'm not trying to replicate what an OB might do or say, And, and after all, OBs and internists have are trained to have completely different skill sets, um, but rather I'm going to be doing my counseling from the perspective of an internist. So in a sense, I view pregnancy as sort of a stress test for the body. And so I treat the preconception visit kind of like an overall medical risk assessment, meaning is there anything about this patient's chronic medical problems or medical history or lifestyle or family history that could potentially pose a risk or deviation from a routine uneventful pregnancy. So, you know, that being said, in this case, this patient sounds like she's, you know, never been pregnant before, so we don't have any past pregnancy history on her. Um, Assuming she's otherwise healthy and her only medical problem is, you know, just an occasional albuterol inhaler use, uh, that sounds like that's her, you know, main medical problem. I'd kind of, um, sorry, I'm just getting really short of breath with long sentences (laughs) Um, are you okay yeah i'm okay Okay. yeah i'm i'm at 37 weeks right now oh my gosh gosh. but i was so excited about this podcast that i was like i'll just you know take that risk
0: (laughs) please don't get too excited about the podcast
1: (laughs) you're giving us a a real
3: life lesson in pregnancy physiology right now yeah (laughs)
1: totally um yeah, so I would um start by just trying to get more information about this patient. You know, and I would say another piece of advice is don't worry about not knowing the significance of something meaning if a patient asks, you know, about how their asthma would impact pregnancy and you don't quite know or if they mention in their family history like let's say they had a a family member that once had a DVT and you don't know if it's going to impact their pregnancy, it's okay. You don't have to figure it all out at that first visit. The main first step I would say is to gather all the information because more often than not, the answers and the details. And um, again, if anything, internists excel at is doing a very thorough H and P. So trying to, you know, flush out this scenario, get as much information as you can and kind of go through it, you know, with the patient one by one. And then in terms of asthma, per se, you know, I remember learning um, in med school that like a third of patients with asthma, you know, do fine in pregnancy, a third get worse, a third stay about the same. And that always gave me the impression that it was kind of like a crapshoot, like you threw a dice in the air, and you might be any one of these three things. But in reality, it's not, it's not quite that random. And generally speaking, if your asthma's fairly well controlled before pregnancy, you can kind of expect it to stay that way during pregnancy.
0: Shelley, this may seem like a dumb question, probably because it is, but I feel like in my, and in much of my experience, you you check a pregnancy test for almost other reasons or because you have a concern or it, it's sort of not the reason for the visit explicitly, and then you check and it comes back positive and then you're like, okay, now what? And I, I guess I, what I'm admitting to is I don't do a good job of sort of assessing someone's readiness to be pregnant before that presents itself. So I guess Fundamentally, what I'm asking is how, how do you ask patients about whether or not they're planning for, for pregnancy or not, and how often do you do it, and how, how do you incorporate that into their care?
1: Um, I typically do it at their annual visit just because it's not, a, it's not a sick visit. We're not focusing on any particular complaint, and so I just take advantage of the annual visit just to ask them, especially when I'm asking about their social history, You know, um, just to incorporate it at that point asking about pregnancy intent. And and sometimes patients say, you know, oh, it's something that I'm definitely interested in the next couple of years. And then so we'll just revisit it in the future. Um, but if it's something that they are actively working on, you know, within the next six months to a year, then I'll have, you know, a more detailed conversation with them about it.
3: And are there specific, like for this patient, for Ava, would you tell her to do anything different? You know, if she was smoking, stop smoking or change any habits that are are like lifestyle related and and when do you do you tell folks to start taking um you know any prenatals or folic acids? Is that sort of when they are is well when do you kind of make those recommendations for folks in the preconception process
1: yeah i mean um assessing so at first I'd assess what her lifestyle is, so definitely asking about you know all of these you know, asking about any substance use, smoking, alcohol, um, asking about, you know, fitness level, asking about diet, exercise, sleep, that kind of thing, just to get a baseline assessment on her lifestyle and kind of counseling just general healthy practices from there. In terms of folic acid, you can start that pretty much, you know, anytime you're thinking about pregnancy, you know, there's no need to like wait to start it when you're actually pregnant. So at the end of the day, I just tell them it's the vitamin, start it kind of anytime. In terms of smoking and alcohol, I mean, it's definitely recommended against doing that in pregnancy. And then for caffeine use, um, you don't want to drink excessive amounts of caffeine during pregnancy, but it's okay to have one or two cups of coffee or tea or any kind of caffeinated beverage a day. And in terms of controlled substances, um, so if there is a history of benzodiazepine dependency, it's best to, you know, try to taper down before pregnancy. And then if um, if a patient has a history of, you know, opiate dependency, um, that gets a little tricky, but I just want to mention that methadone and buprenorphine are approved for use in pregnancy. So that is an issue I'd recommend if you are in a ad- you know comfortable with addiction medicine or if the patient already has an addiction medicine specialist following kind of working with them to kind of adjust the dose and monitor it throughout pregnancy
2: I wanted to ask this this actually has come up during my my time as an internist a similar woman in her 30s was asking me if she needed c- certain labs she goes I want you to I'm thinking of starting to, starting a family so I want you to check my levels and check all my labs just to make sure I'm okay, that I'm healthy enough to have a pregnancy. And my thought was like, you know, this was someone that was exercising, didn't have any diabetes, hypertension, and I don't think had tried to conceive before. So I was just like, get to it. You're like, good luck. Take some pre <laughs> take some prenatal vitamins and uh get out there. And I don't know that, that was correct or not, but I was just, you know, the question, her question to me was like, I I must need, certainly I need labs. You got to check my hormone levels and make sure that I'm okay. So how do you handle that kind of question?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. There's no specific preconception labs. And I would, you know, tailor, in terms of routine labs, I would tailor it to whatever would be indicated for someone in that particular age range. And then otherwise, I do get labs sometimes, but it's, you know, again, tailored to that patient-specific condition. So if they've had a history of gastric bypass, I would do a very thorough, you know, nutrition panel, checking for different vitamin levels, screening for anemia, things like that. If they had, you know, a history of some endocrinopathy, you know, like thyroid, I would check that. So it's, it's really individualized for the patient, but there's nothing, there's no standard, like everybody needs to check X, Y, and Z. And what I tell patients is like you, whatever medical condition you have, you just want to make sure that you're in the best possible clinical state going into pregnancy.
3: And this is kind of a broad question, but are there any like specific buckets of conditions that you are, you know, kind of raising a red flag for you in terms of maybe the patient may be on a medication that's unsafe, like autoimmune conditions or maybe even like hypertension? And what are sort of those broad categories that you, you think maybe we should actually pause and make sure we're checking the med list that there's nothing overtly teratogenic?
1: Yeah. So any. Patient who's on chronic medications needs a review of like each of these medications. So I go through them one by one with the patient depending on what they are. And then same thing for any chronic medical condition. You know, again, diabetes, hypertension, those are just more prevalent ones, but it could be anything. It could be autoimmune, it could be renal, um, cardiac disease whatever they have that's kind of you know a, a focus of the preconception visit is to kind of go through them one by one and evaluate their potential risk for the pregnancy and seeing so i would say what's their risk how is how optimizes the patient for that condition and then if there's anything further that needs to be done for it before pregnancy
2: when you're reviewing the medication list that goes along with it for instance let's say ava has anxiety, and she's taking sertraline twenty five milligrams a day, and she's worried about that. Where would you look? Let's say you didn't know offhand if that was safe or not. Where do you like to look up that information, and how do you talk to the patient because a lot of the times it says like c or b or and you know it's it's kind of very open ended for the clinician that's like looking up the information.
1: Yeah, so the general rule of thumb surrounding medications in pregnancy is really individualizing that risk benefit. So, um yeah, everyone's heard of the, you know, categories A, B, C, D, X and, you know, there's very few meds that are in class A and, you know, the meds that are in class D constantly have new data coming in on their safety. So, in recent years, we've actually moved away from using these categories just because they seem so cut and dry or binary and just really focusing on individualizing that patient's, you know, risk benefit. So again, what I do for each medication on a patient's list is, you know, again, doing a literature search on their safety profile. And if it's an obscure med, you know, looking up old case reports and then also talking to any other subspecialist that's involved in the patient's care. So, in this patient's case, if she's on sertraline for anxiety, I'd first want to make an assessment of how long has she been on that medication, how well is her anxiety controlled. If it's been, you know, six months or longer since she's had really any symptoms and she's super well controlled, we could, you know, discuss maybe a taper, you know, off that medication to see how she does on it. So that's one scenario. Another scenario is if, you know, she's Still quite anxious and actually needs like a dose up titration, for example. Then, again, the general rule of thumb is you got to, you know, take care of that medical condition first. That takes priority. And then, in terms of, you know, the safety profile, generally SSRIs are safe and to use in pregnancy, but, you know, that's individual medications can just do a quick literature search online. Um, ACOG recommends, ACOG, the American College of IBGYN, recommends against using Paxil specifically during pregnancy, but uh, generally, you know, sertraline is well-tolerated and safe.
0: And Paxil being paroxetine.
1: Yes,
2: paroxetine. And there's not a, so there's not a specific, because I know there's a mother, what is it, Mother's Milk website for lactation, but but that's mostly for lactation, I think, right? You know, a woman who's lactating, but for pregnancy, usually I I try to look on Lexicomp or Micromedics, because if you're in the middle of a clinic visit, like to do a literature search is you know i guess you could say i'll get back to you but do you have like a quick resource that that you go to or is it is it pretty much individualized
1: um yeah i mean you could use those for, like as a just a quick and simple you know saying like oh in this category generally this is fine um but uh for you know my preconception visits i kind of have done that kind of homework beforehand and to, just to Got give it. the patient the, like the latest information so i think if they they ask offhand, like, oh, hey, can I use this medication in pregnancy? You can say, you can give like, because patients are really looking for a, a, a quick yes or no. You know, I will try to satisfy that and say, you know, yes, generally speaking, SSRIs are safe. But, you know, if you really want to go in depth, let's have a separate conversation to see like how you're, what you're using this med for. How is that process going? Is it something you can come off of? Is it something, you know, that you have to stay on? What are the risks? of staying on it. And I always do that literature search, because there's always new information coming in. And sometimes, you know, one paper can say, oh, they found this risk, and another paper can say, no, it's safe, you know, so doing that work to kind of try to simplify things for the patient, you know, beforehand, I think is really helpful.
2: Yeah. It's always great when there's like two meta analyses and they like don't agree with each yeah. other. That's always <laughs> that's always the best.
1: And I would
3: guess like this is a patient population that's incredibly hard to study. I mean, this is me just making an assumption, but I would mm-hmm. assume that, you know, recruiting patients who are pregnant or seeking pregnancy and like being like, Hey, our pitch is we want to see if this meta is safe for you during pregnancy is probably not something that appeals to a lot of people. So I would guess it's kind of a scarce landscape. Is that true? That there's maybe not a ton of data for some of this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um I think pregnant women often get left out of, you know, clinical trials, medical studies, so a lot of the the research that comes out is just retroactive, you know, um papers that obviously are subject to a lot of biases. And a lot of a lot of information about medications come from drug registries for example, and so again that's subject to biases as well cuz you know, you're more likely to report things if you've had an adverse effect. You know, so again that makes all of that really challenging and so we so I always start my counseling by telling them that this is all just based on how other people have done. There's no clinical trial or there's no definitive report, you know, and, and that's why it boils back down to the risk benefit analysis, you know, so there's no, I tell the patient there's no medication that's 100% safe. There's no medication that's like terribly, that's, that's 100% off the table. It all depends on what you need. And then- and then, what are the risks of taking that, and how comfortable you are with that risk? So, I'll give you an example, something like warfarin, which um, is generally not used in pregnancy, of course, and you know, and typically, if a patients on chronic anticoagulation, we would switch to Lovenox, which is anoxaparin during pregnancy. But if someone is on warfarin, it really depends on their indication. So, if someone has a mechanical valve, then they, you know, obviously can't come off warfarin. So, in that case, the conversation changes to what's their daily warfarin dose and you know convening a multidisciplinary conversation with a cardiologist with a maternal fetal medicine specialist just to make sure the patient truly understands the risks and benefits of pursuing pregnancy on that particular medication and i've had patients you know come away from those meetings saying like okay i don't want to get pregnant after all you know i'm not okay with the risks and that's okay too it's just about having them make an informed decision
2: I wanted to try to summarize a little bit, and and, uh, and then we'll see where we're going to go move forward with the case. But it sounds like in general, like all good medicine, there's a lot of taking a good history, sizing up the patient, like what are their medical conditions? How well controlled are they? Are there any medications that we need to talk about tapering? And we're going to look up, if we're worried about any meds, the safety in pregnancy, we're going to look that up and maybe talk to some of our pharmacy colleagues or other colleagues if we need more information We said, of course, good counseling about like tobacco, alcohol. You said caffeine, maybe a cup of coffee or two. I know a lot of people just cut it out totally, but it's, I'm sure our audience, Paul, coffee, just coffee is always good, right, Paul?
0: It's, it's, it seems to be good for everything so far. I've not found a study to contradict that.
3: (laughs) I I love debunking this one because I feel like you hear a lot of people being like, oh, I'm going, I'm trying to get pregnant. I'm just going to stop drinking coffee. For a while. And it's like a very painful transition. As somebody who drinks a lot of coffee, I can't imagine like giving it up cold turkey. So I think that's nice that there's a little bit of a new one. Prenatal there.
2: vitamins cancel out the coffee Beth. So it's just <laughs> as long as you take your prenatal vitamins, uh your folic acid, you're you're okay. Sure. Because um,
0: nothing's conducive to pregnancy, like just a piercing headache that is completely refractory in <laughs> other <got> medications. <laughs>
2: So, I guess the other uh the other thing that's in the primary care wheelhouse is like I I know patients OB's good about they get certain labs during the course of a pregnancy and they are making sure patients are getting like their flu vaccination when they're pregnant, but if someone in the preconception visit in this visit Miss Ava when she comes to us, what would you tell her about getting vaccinated? And I don't know, do we want to throw COVID vaccination in here is that that wasn't really We didn't ask you ahead of time, so I don't want to throw you under the bus. Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, um, the American College of OBGYN and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine both came out to say that COVID vaccinations are safe in pregnancy um, and that, you know, people have done well with it. So there's really no medical reason to not get vaccinated. Yeah. Generally speaking, I I mean, I don't have any particular vaccinations for preconception. It's just making sure that, you know... Patients, whatever their particular risk factors are, to get the age-appropriate or risk-factor-appropriate vaccinations. Yeah.
2: yeah. So just any, like with the labs, mm-hmm. any anything that you would be getting anyway, right. you would you would get those labs, you would give those vaccinations.
3: Right. And, exactly. Uh, I feel like taking a, a good vaccination history is actually a nice thing to do. Sometimes it's sometimes like not in the EMR because folks, you know, had a, their pediatrician pre-EMR. And there's gaps in some – I mean, there's some people in their 30s and 40s who maybe haven't been – haven't had chicken pox and things like that. That might be a good thing to get them vaxxed for before they are attempting pregnancy. But it's the only one that really jumps out. But it's kind of nice to at least memorialize that somewhere.
1: Yep. And, you know, like you said earlier, the OBs are also really good about making sure people are up to date on their vaccinations and then everyone gets a Tdap vaccine during their third trimester. And flu vaccine also is yes, recommended, yeah.
2: Let's move on to the next part of the case. Beth, what, what's next for Ava here?
3: So Ava is now 35, and she's also pregnant. She is seeing a local ob and she recently had an eight-week ultrasound showing a viable pregnancy. But she's now in your office for two days of a sore throat. Um, she's a teacher, and there's been a strep throat outbreak at her school. How do you approach the patient that comes in that is incidentally pregnant but has this acute complaint? Are there any things that you change in your management or keep the same and and we'd love to hear your approach for that.
1: Yeah, so um any infections that occur during pregnancy need to be treated the same as in non-pregnant patients, you know. So in terms of so if this patient has strep throat, then she needs to be treated with the appropriate antibiotics. If this patient has um, URI symptoms, you know, in terms of over-the-counter medications, most over-the-counter medications are okay, you know, such as Tylenol, antihistamines, you know, things like um, guifenesin, dextromethorphan, those are all okay to use. You want to avoid ibuprofen and other NSAIDs in terms of over-the-counter medications. And I would say generally the rule of thumb in terms of infections in pregnancy is, if anything, you would have a lower threshold to treat infections just because in pregnancy, your immune system is a little bit lower. So infections can more easily progress during pregnancy in a way that you may not expect in an otherwise like healthy young person. So, you know, close monitoring for infections definitely needed in pregnancy.
2: So Chalet, our patient has, she has a sore throat. We've diagnosed her with, let's say we diagnosed her with strep throat. From my reading, it seemed like the beta-lactam antibiotics, which are like your penicillins, your carbapenems, as astreonam, the cephalosporins, those are generally safe in pregnancy. Is there any like antibiotics that, so we could give her amoxicillin for her sore throat or penicillin, but what, are there any big no-nos when it comes to antibiotics in pregnancy?
1: Yeah, so most antibiotics are okay, particularly the beta-lactams and they, they are the preferred antibiotics if they're able to be given. Um general classes you'd want to avoid would be fluoroquinolones and tetracyclines. And then something like sulfonamides such as Bactrim we generally avoid in the first trimester and late third trimester, um but they're okay to use in the second trimester. So sometimes that that can be a preferred agent depending on the clinical scenario.
2: Yeah, it's hard to remember all these, like when you're talking about all the different meds, like there's a lot of some, they're like, okay, first trimester, not okay, third yeah. trimester, yeah, that, that stuff kind of trips you up. I, I probably, if you do it all the time like you do, you're probably more used to that, but that, that kind of thing trips me up. But that's why we have infinite knowledge in our pockets these days with a, <laughs> to, to look that up.
1: I think if you um most things can be treated with, you know, beta lactam. So if you could stick with that, then that's a really safe like rule of thumb for you to stick to.
2: Right. Okay. Well, Beth, why don't we give her some symptoms in it? Cause there there's a lot of symptom management and I want to make sure we talk about like if if our if our listeners have pregnant patients calling them with symptoms, we want to be able to manage those.
3: Yeah. So let's say she, you know, doesn't have a strep outbreak in the school she works at. She just has some nonspecific symptoms. What would be your go-to sort of med- medication regimen for a pregnant person who has a headache?
1: Yeah. So for headache, you know, my go-to cocktail for headache would be um, a combination of extra-strength Tylenol, Reglan, and um, and a small caffeinated beverage and just increasing their overall oral hydration. Um so sometimes just taking that little combo um, right when the headache starts is enough to kind of nip it in the bud. And then it also depends on, you know, why they might have a headache as well. You know, is it just because they're in caffeine withdrawal or they haven't had enough sleep or they're um, not remembering to drink extra water, you know, and so they're so they're actually a little dehydrated. I mean, these things are all quite common in pregnancy. So um, this c- cocktail kind of addresses some of that. Um, It's a little bit different in patients who have chronic headaches or migraines that get worse during pregnancy. So sometimes that could involve adjusting their chronic medications. I would say a, um, a lot of times patients, you know, do have persistent headaches, not because they have, you know, baseline migraines or chronic headaches, but just headaches that start in pregnancy. And so it, again, depends on their severity. And if they're using this cocktail acetaminophen and metaclopramide, multiple times a week or every day, that's when I start them on a daily medication. So I could do a daily magnesium oxide. And um, sometimes I also, if they have a lot of trouble with sleep and that's um, causing their headaches, then I could start a low dose amitriptyline as well.
2: Is its is it 400 of magnesium ox- oxide that you give?
1: Yes. Yep. Okay.
2: Yeah. The the metaclopramide I, I always worry about like the tardive dyskinesia, or like the dystonic symptoms. Do you worry about that as much in the pregnant? Maybe I'm just thinking of like generally more sick patients that that's a side effect.
1: The dose I'm giving is pretty low. It's just five milligrams and people take it like maximum two or three times a day and it's for a, a short duration. So I'm not as, um, it's not the same as in a non-pregnant patient, you're using like higher doses for a chronic, let's say GI issue, you know, so short-term has been okay.
2: Great. You're giving me confidence.
1: How about a patient who comes in with a nausea? And sometimes this
3: is something that will get fielded through an OB-GYN's office, but let's say they're in your office. What What is your go-to for that?
1: Um, first line that a lot of OBs already give the patients would be uh, doxylamine and um, pyroxidine. So usually by the time patients complain about that, to me they've already been given that by their OBs. So again, I always I also start them on metoclopramide. A lot of times the nausea is also impacted by some constipation, especially during first trimester of pregnancy. So the medical vermide really helps with that. You can also take ondansetron during pregnancy as well, but I generally save that a second line because again, I think a lot of times the nausea is from either constipation or dehydration. And so, you know, trying to address some of the other underlying, con- you know, contributors.
0: And have you bought into the isopropyl alcohol aromatherapy? Because I think I actually started in <laughs> OB no <land>. Oh, really?
1: <laughs> Uh, I don't know anything about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Something yeah, I do want to ask, and this might be too broad a question, it might be, even be its own episode, but I, I guess, are there? can you tell me about some of the common changes in some of the chronic diseases that happen with pregnancy? For instance, I know you have to keep a close eye on thyroid function. You mentioned actually sort of treating opioid use disorder and having to adjust medications that way. Are there any other sort of broad conditions that the general internist should know about to be mindful of changes that occur? You mentioned asthma as well, so things like that that we should kind of keep our eye on because they may evolve or change during pregnancy.
1: Um, yeah, so generally, so for for example, like hypertension, which is pretty common, um, it, you know, it goes back to how well their chronic condition is controlled in the first place. But if someone is has um, fairly mild, well controlled, essential hypertension, which is often the case for patients in their 20s and 30s, or patients in childbearing age, um, then a lot of times they don't need any blood pressure medications their first trimester or, or um, first and early second trimester, just because physiologically during pregnancy, your blood pressure does go down a little bit during that time before it kind of comes back up to your baseline by mid to late second trimester. So it really um, depends. So, so blood pressure is one that, again, depending on how many agents there are beforehand and kind of discussing with the patient their preference, we can either take a watch and wait approach or you know go ahead and change their medications to a lower dose or change it to a different agent. You know, so that's one. Diabetes is one where, if someone has pre existing diabetes, pregnancy itself um, is associated with worsening insulin resistance, and that's just mediated by a lot of the pregnancy hormones. So, oftentimes with diabetes, that's, you know, going to get worse during pregnancy. So, again, keeping, you know, a really close eye on that. If the patient's not already on insulin prior to pregnancy. They often have to be switched to insulin during pregnancy and monitoring close level. So a lot of times during pregnancy, if, if a patient has poorly controlled diabetes, they'll often be referred to maternal fetal medicine for kind of co-management.
2: Hey, curbsiders. How are you doing? How's your diet? You know, it's been, it's been a stressful time, and as we all know... When we're under stress, maybe we tend to eat foods that aren't so great for us. That's why I love our sponsor, Green Chef. I've mentioned this before, talked about it with Paul. You know, Paul likes Green Chef because he tends to eat hot garbage when left to his own devices, but Green Chef sends him beautiful, tasty, healthy meals that get him, you know, eating on the right track. For me, I love Green Chef because, let's face it, I don't really know how to cook, I don't understand seasoning. And Green Chef makes all that easy for me. They have these wonderful recipes. All the ingredients are there. I like to make these meals with my kids who are interested in cooking. And this is a great way for them to learn how to cook and for me to look like a hero because I'm making a delicious meal for the family. Green Chef has meal plans for every healthy lifestyle, whether it's keto, paleo, if you're plant-powered, or if you just want a balanced, healthy diet, they have meal plans for you, and if you're a busy parent, you don't have to worry about planning out your dinners because they do all that for you. Everything's pre-portioned. The recipes are easy to follow, and of course, it's going to be delivered right to you, so you're going to love it. Go to greenchef.com slash curb125 and use the code curb125 to get $125 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com dot com slash curb one two five and use the code curb one two five to get a hundred twenty five dollars off including free shipping green chef the number one meal kit for eating well should we move on with the case here we know what we're going to do now for ava we treated her strep throat she had some nausea we gave her acetaminophen metoclopramide. Maybe a, a little bit of caffeine. She felt better. We uh, made sure that she was on a bowel regimen. Did we get a bowel regimen? Uh, did we get any specific recommendations from you there? Is peg uh, what you recommend? The polyethylene glycol or
1: yeah, you could do that. So for constipation, pretty much most over-the-counter medications totally okay. So uh, you know, common favorites would be docusate Metamucil. You can use um, milk of magnesia as well. These are all available over the counter. I wouldn't say there's any definitely do not use. I, I just personally recommend um, the stimulant loxatives more a second line. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be like your bisicodal, arsena, just because sometimes depending on, you know, where you are, it, if you use that a lot, it can, because again, it's a stimulant, it might cause contractions or might cause like
2: Um, Oh, boy. You
1: know, so you you don't, (laughs) (laughs) um, again, I think the occasional use is okay. But, you know, again, you don't want to get to the point where you're you know, chugging on milk of magnesia and taking a ton of um laxatives. You know, you want to be more in that preventive mode. So that's something I definitely recommend to patients to kind of stay on top of starting the first trimester. So making sure again they're well hydrated, making sure they have a high fiber diet, making sure they're getting frequent exercise, you know, um, just to kind of help prevent it from getting to such a extensive, you know, degree.
2: You mentioned exercise. I don't know if we talked about this yet. I I don't think we did, unless I missed it. But is there where we where do we stand with recommending exercise for women who are pregnant or want to become pregnant, or persons who are pregnant or want to become pregnant? I should say.
1: Yeah. So generally speaking, exercise is good. You know, I what I tell women is you know either before pregnancy or early trimester try to get a a good stable exercise regimen going, meaning you don't want your first workout to be during pregnancy, you know, (laughs) so um, best case scenario is that (laughs) best case scenario is that you have a good exercise routine going already before pregnancy that you're comfortable with, you know, and that you can just try to maintain during pregnancy. And if you don't, that's okay, too, as long as, you know, first trimester, you start slow, build up something gradual, you know, even if it's all you can handle is taking a walk every day. That's still good. You don't want to wait until your third trimester, just because if you haven't been exercising routinely in the first two, it's going to be pretty darn hard to start later. So again, you know, that's something we go over at you know the initial visit, just to kind of say making sure that's good. And, and studies have found that exercise reduced your risk of um, preeclampsia as well. So it's actually you know very beneficial. And generally, the target heart rate would be kind of like a moderate intensity exercise so you don't um so target heart rate like maybe 130 150 you know beats per minute you don't need to you don't need to go super extreme and i think weights it would be like very mild weights are okay and then generally speaking you don't want to do anything that involves a lot of uh like risks for falling, for example. So, like, you know, I've had patients ask me about rock climbing or you know skiing that kind of thing. So, just st- you know, generally staying away from that. But treadmills are good. Base
0: diving, um, just all the usual stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Is there like a week cutoff for
3: um for when or like when you would tell someone to really like stop skiing or stop snowboarding? And you can tell I'm from based in New England when I ask that question I feel like it's come up several times with patients like in pregnancy. Um, like, is it safer to, if they're doing it in their first trimester
1: versus later or, or how how is is there any guideline to that? It's not the activity itself. It's more just your risk for falling. So, you know, it's more, um, you don't want to do any activity that has like a potential trauma associated with it, you know? Uh, so I... So like I said I I think I'd just emphasize kind of l- low to moderate intensity mostly cardiovascular based exercises such as walking light jogging maybe mild weights you know yoga is good but not hot yoga or anything that would really increase the temperature like saunas and things like that I would just generally stay away from that
3: So moving on in this this patient's pregnancy um she's recovered from her acute illness um she used her nausea and headache cocktails, and they worked like a charm. She used uh, she stayed on top of her bowel regimen, and she had a pretty good pregnancy course except for some gestational hypertension that was not super severe, managed by her OB. She delivered a healthy eight-pound infant, um, and she's been following regularly with her OB for postpartum care. She's in your office now at six months postpartum for previously scheduled annual. She's Reporting that she's feeling kind of run down, which is understandable for a, a new parent, and she's breastfeeding. How how do you approach counseling patients when they're in this immediate postpartum period? Are there any things that you're keeping an eye out for?
1: So yeah, a couple of things in that case jump out at me. Um, the first being that the patient had gestational hypertension, and just a quick you know review of definitions within the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, gestational. Hypertension is new onset elevated blood pressures greater than 140 over 90 after 20 weeks, but without end organ damage or proteinuria, whereas preeclampsia is um, you know, the same definition, but with proteinuria and, and organ damage. So um, we know that there's increased um, risk of future cardiovascular disease. Um, Including hypertension with a history of preeclampsia. It's a little bit less clear with just gestational hypertension, but in either case, you know, we would really emphasize close blood pressure checks within the first at least six to eight weeks. Um, And then again, this is typically done by the OB. And then definitely checking blood pressure again at six months postpartum and then after that annually. And then, you know, if the patient had preeclampsia, which it doesn't sound like she did, I would just repeat all the preeclampsia labs within the first three to six months postpartum to make sure that any abnormalities have resolved. And so that would be, you know, checking their creatinine, checking their AST, ALT, if they had transaminitis and repeating their urine studies if they had significant proteinuria. You know, you also mentioned that this patient was feeling really run down. Um, so I would, you know, at this point, just kind of talk to her a little bit more about those symptoms, ask her about mood. Um, you know, she would still be at risk for postpartum depression up to one year after having her baby. So, um, you can use PHQ-9. Um, you can also use the Edinburgh, um, depression, postpartum depression scale, which the questions are a little bit more tailored to postpartum patients, you know, to kind of get a sense of um, how she is there. And this can be done at every visit within that first year postpartum.
3: And what about if our patient had maybe gestational diabetes? Is that another thing that you might want to be managing or running any additional tests for?
1: Yeah. So gestational diabetes, um, it's quite common. Um, Sometimes needs treatment with insulin, but not always. Um, A lot of times it's just, you know, managed with diet. And then typically OBs would do another oral glucose tolerance test um, immediately postpartum, which would be the same test that they had done for screening just to make sure that the patient, you know, diabetes had resolved. Um, And then I would do another hemoglobin A1C at some time between three to six months postpartum. And then after that, it would be annually as well. Because we know that gestational diabetes significantly increases your later in life risk of type 2 diabetes.
0: And you mentioned screening for depression. I I feel like somewhere in the back of my brain, I remember hearing that the risk for infant partner violence is also higher in the peripartum period as well. Can you talk to me a little bit about, does that change the way that you screen for that at all? Like how do you change intervals or... um... And I guess I'll leave it with that question.
1: Yeah. So screening for intimate partner violence, um, we do that at, you know, you know every annual visit just routinely. And then it is part of um, the postpartum, you know, visit. So the OBs would do that as well. And then, you know, you could continue to do that um, just in a routine primary care doctor's office. I would... The way I frame it is I say, you know, we ask this of everybody postpartum so that patients don't feel like you're singling them out for this like awkward question. Um, and then it would be, and I do it kind of around the same, like around the same time I I do my postpartum depression screen so that they feel like, oh, this is just, you know, something routine I'm getting, you know, postpartum.
0: Right, And kind of normalize it so it's easier to talk about
1: yeah and i've um and because I do see more postpartum patients, I've you know already talked to my personal m a about making sure they have those like depression screening papers ready so that they like already have it handed to the patient you know by the time I walk into the room
2: are are we ready for take home points or beth are there are there other parts of this case? I mean I know we could get and and maybe on a future episode, we'll have to go deep into gestational diabetes and gestational hypertension treatment. But uh, for this first episode, we didn't really have time for that. Um, any any last questions before we go to take-home points?
3: One other question that I don't have in the script, but I was thinking of adding and forgot to do was um, for folks who are breastfeeding, do you recommend like any particular way of supplementing their diet? Like should they stay on a prenatal? Like I feel like that's something that I've wondered about.
1: Yeah. I always tell patients to stay on whatever prenatal vitamin they were taking during pregnancy, at least, you know, whether they're breastfeeding or not, but at least, you know, two to three months postpartum. And if they are breastfeeding, I would just continue on it for however long they're breastfeeding. You know, so breastfeeding doesn't, it doesn't make you dehydrated, but it does make you lose a little bit more electrolytes. Um, So, you know, kind of making sure you're eating a good, well balanced, nutritious diet during that time is really important.
3: And do you recommend like routine um, iron supplementation? Are you more like on top of that postpartum?
1: Yeah. So this is where I deviate a little bit from OBGYNs um, because they see so much of anemia during pregnancy. And I don't know if they necessarily repeat people's CBCs postpartum, just because they assume if you're a healthy young person, you're going to be making that hemoglobin back. But for me, if I notice that they had significant anemia during pregnancy, um, I always check another CBC at the six-month mark just to make sure it is improving. One of the reasons I do that is in case that patient goes on to have another pregnancy with like a close interpregnancy interval, I don't want them to start off their next pregnancy already anemic, which would make the anemia harder to treat. you know. And also anemia in the postpartum period has been linked to, you know, worsening mood, potentially exacerbating postpartum depression, just because, you know, again, if you, you have low energy levels. So um, that's something I do repeat. And if they're low, I, I continue their iron supplementation. And then in terms of other medications for breastfeeding, generally speaking, it's the same risks as, you know, the the medications during pregnancy, but overall, it's a much more liberalized list. So, um and that's when I, I refer to my uh, mother's milk, you know, handbook, just to give the most updated information. But generally speaking, more meds are okay in breastfeeding than in pregnancy.
0: Still deeply anxiety provoking. I feel like 90% of the time it's like, yeah, this is in the breast milk, but we don't know what to do with that. And you're like, well, great. Thank you for that. I'm almost <laughs> happy you're not looking. All right. I think, <laughs> so I think we're at the point now, are we, are we ready for take home points? All right. Bring us home. Dr. Chen, shall I, what, what would you like our listeners to come away from this with? If they could take nothing else away, give us two or three points that are probably the most important from the episode.
1: The first point is, you know, as an internist, getting a really thorough history. Like, you know, like I said earlier, it's okay if you don't know or feel comfortable with, you know, all the information, but getting just good baseline information on your patient will go a long way. Second of all, you know, really focusing on individualizing the care, I think A, that makes patients feel like you're really listening to them and they get more satisfaction from that. But B, also kind of, you know, reemphasizing that individualized risk benefit, whether it comes to their medical conditions and medications. Because again, there's no, if anything I've learned about, you know, in practicing medicine and during the obstetric period is that there's no cut and dry, like yes or no answer for any particular thing. Everything has to be kind of individualized for that patient. And so um, that is what makes this challenging, but it also makes it so satisfying as well. You know, the third thing I would emphasize is really don't forget to ask about your patient's pregnancy history. A lot of times in medicine, we totally forget to ask about that, especially for meeting someone at age like 45. You know, it's like, you know, like, who cares what happened to them during pregnancy? But, um, you know, but that's something that I've since learned that, oh, I really need to pay attention to that because if they had, um, you know, gestational diabetes or if they had um, preeclampsia, then I really need to pay attention to their Cardiovascular risk factors really need to, you know, be more vigilant about screening them for diabetes. You know, I think those are the main points, and you know, of course, this this is such a a broad, multidisciplinary field, and so much can be said about any particular medical condition. But you know, I think if anything, want to take away is for the attitudes of general internists to not be scared of pregnancy and, you know, just to be willing to talk to patients and get that conversation started. Because a lot of times you'll be the person that they see before they even, you know, get to see an OBGYN.
2: All right. And we will fade this into the outro.
0: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great standard stuff. Get your show notes at Curbsiders.com And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine.
2: And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Or you can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Uh, a special thanks to our producer for this episode. Beth Garbs Garbatelli, who is also on Twitter. Mad Dog Maddie Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov is on our website. And Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Waddo. Oh, and actually, let me, Beth, before we get to your outro, I should remind the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And now, Beth, please
0: sign
3: off. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli.
0: And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are hearing behind us. We should also thank the fantastic Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and good night.